Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another installment of JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Taylor Odell, an assistant professor of education policy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Thanks, Seth. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could make time to do this, and I'm really excited to talk about your recent publication entitled The Impact of Reverse Transfer Associate Degrees on Education and Labor Market Outcomes. This paper was published in summer of 2023 in JPAM, and the paper was co-authored with Lauren Russell, who's a professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, before we get into the details of the paper, I understand that congratulations are in order and that you and Lauren actually won a major award for this paper, JPAM's 2023 Vernon Memorial Award. So congratulations. Yeah, thanks very much. We definitely appreciate it. And I also just want to say now special thanks to JPAM and our editor, Josh Goodman, and the referees for such really great feedback throughout that whole process. Yes, awesome. Editors and referees are, are a uh, critical part of the publication process, and uh, it's a thankless job a lot of times. So I'm sure that that Josh and the anonymous reviewers appreciate the shout out. And again, accept my hearty congratulations. This is an important and policy relevant paper, and, and we'll get into that in a minute. And we try every year to make sure that we do feature the Vernon Prize paper on the podcast. And longtime listeners will have heard about this before, but a little background for new listeners on the Vernon Memorial Award. So APAM, the Association of Public Policy Analysis and Management, who publishes JPAM, the journal, created the Raymond Vernon Memorial Award in 1985. The award is funded by a special grant to APAM from John Wiley and Sons, uh, who are the publishers of JPAM. It was initially called the Vernon Prize. Uh, the memorial was added to the title after Raymond Vernon passed away in 1999. And Raymond Vernon was an incredibly important and influential person in public policy, both practically and in the academy. Among his many lifetime accomplishments, working in public policy and in public service in the academy, he contributed to the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe after World War II. He uh, actually was involved in developing the peanut M&M, which is a favorite snack of uh, many JPAM reviewers and editors and authors, I'm sure. 
And he was really one of the first people to use computers and quantitative models to analyze stock markets. And he did that while he was serving on the faculty of the Harvard University Business School, as well as Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And on top of all that, and one of the main reasons he's connected with JPAM, is that he was actually the founding editor of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. So this is a an award named after a very prolific scholar and public policymaker. And there is a long line of, of very prolific winners of this award. So congratulations again for joining that distinguished group. Thanks very much. I'll also just say really quickly that this was a nice treat because we did this work in partnership with a state agency. And so I think it was really nice for them to see that this research made a contribution to the field, uh, you know, alongside also kind of providing some usable evidence for them, too. So we definitely think it's a nice treat and we really appreciate it. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and we'll get back to that, that partnership with the state a little bit when we dig into your paper. And I agree that type of research practitioner partnership is, is so important and, and, you know, part of why I think it's important to recognize this work. So, you know, this paper is studying the timely and contentious issue of college and the value of college. Is it worth it? You know, what is the value of a college degree? And specifically, you're looking at a a specific type of college degree, reverse transfer associate degrees. So before we get into what the reverse transfer part of that means, what is an associate's degree and are there different types of associate degrees out there? So associate degrees are these credentials that typically have a shorter time horizon. And so we think about kind of there's these three broad categories of credentials. Bachelor's degrees are typically designed to take four years, associate degrees, two years. And then there's another category like certificates that traditionally take about one year or less. And most of the time, associate degrees are awarded by community colleges or two-year institutions. And so just for kind of a magnitude comparison, we award about 2 million BAs or bachelor's degrees every year in the U.S. and about 1 million associate degrees. So about half as many bachelor's degrees um, that are being produced. But an AA or an associate degree functions a lot like a bachelor's degree. So a student, you know, selects a major. So you can get an associate of arts in math or an associate of arts in English. But more often, these programs take on kind of one of two very specific flavors. And one of those, I'll say, is workforce preparation, if you will. And so here, those associate degrees are typically more applied and focus on very specific preparation for entry into a specific field, such as like an associate of applied science in nursing or an associate of applied technology in information technology or cybersecurity. And those type of kind of workforce preparation associate degrees make up about a third of all associate degrees that are awarded. But the most kind of common version is the second flavor, which is kind of an associate degree for uh, transfer. And so here, most of those associate degrees focus on preparing students to then move on from a two-year college to a four-year institution or a university. And this kind of follows the traditional pathway of thinking about, ah, what if we 
you know, spend two or so years added to your institution getting my general education requirements completed, right? So that when I move to a four-year, I can directly enroll in major coursework. So students will get an associate degree in kind of a more general field, like an AA in arts and science or an AA in general or liberal studies. And these make up about 40% of all AAs that are awarded. And typically, four-year bachelor's degrees are associated with a a bigger earnings bump or earnings boost than a two-year degree. How big is that difference on average? There is a really meaningful difference there. And so kind of ostensibly, there's this idea, right, that, you know, less training, you know, gives a smaller earnings premium in the workforce. And so right now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts the median earnings for a high school diploma holder around $44,000 a year. BA holders, though, the median earnings for folks that hold the bachelor's is around 74000 So that's a, a $30,000 bump annually in median earnings from going from a high school to a BA. AA holders, though, we should think they're somewhere in the middle, but they actually only realize about a quarter of that benefit. So median earnings for an associate degree holder are around $52,000 or $8,000 more than a high school diploma. And these are just descriptive, you know, viewpoints of what happens in the population. But these line up almost exactly with prior studies that have looked at kind of the causal impact of an AA or the returns to an AA, where it varies between six and ten thousand dollars. So I, I think it's interesting and important to note that you know, even if you might expect it, the two-year degree earnings bump is not in the middle of a four-year degree in high school diploma. It's closer to that of a high school diploma. And my understanding in the broader literature is that it's it's not just earnings on a lot of different sort of socioeconomic dimensions. Associate degree holders more closely resemble high school graduates than they do college uh, four-year graduates. That's exactly right. And depending on a lot of those factors, like you mentioned, especially gender, but also especially the field in which an associate degree holder then goes to work in, their earnings can be functionally equivalent or even lower than those of a high school, you know, diploma holder that works in a different field or something. And you kind of hinted at this, but do we think the reason is just that those four years lead to not just more training, but also more training in more lucrative fields or or more in-demand fields? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there are a couple of reasons why we may not see, you know, even getting an associate degree, putting you halfway, you know, between diploma, you know, high school graduate and someone who has a bachelor's degree. And one of those reasons is on average, AAs or associate degrees are more closely aligned to kind of lower paying jobs or jobs that require a lower level of education. And so those are then on average lower paying. And so it's plausible also that a higher share of AA holders end up entering jobs that don't necessarily require that level of education, which is then going to kind of deflate what we see as the average, you know, premium of getting an associate degree if they enroll in those fields. But I'll also say that, you know, kind of to your point of, you know, getting a bachelor's degree is potentially more aligned to in-demand fields or even signals, you know, a higher level or at least deeper, you know, focus in specific fields or skills. As I mentioned before, 40% of associate degrees roughly are awarded in this general field, right? Like an associate of arts and science or an associate of general studies. 
And so it's very unclear if this signals a defined set of knowledge and skills and abilities to employers in the marketplace. So we know from prior work and just, you know, descriptive evidence that students' earnings vary by their major, right? If you get a BA in, you know, field one or a BA in field two, your earnings are likely to vary. And so getting an associate degree in this essentially general area or essentially having kind of no major is also a likely or a plausible explanation for why they may ultimately have lower earnings. And specifically now, let's come back to this idea of reverse transfer. Reversing what and and transferring what? What are these degrees exactly? Yeah, really great question. It's very nuanced. So kind of just to set the foundation for our paper and our conversation, what we're talking about are transfer students and in what we would call like traditional transfer process. So these are students that start at a community college or a two-year institution, and then they move to a four-year college or university. And so when we talk about students in that way, we're referring to the student transferring, moving from the community college to a university. Reverse transfer, though, doesn't necessarily talk about that student. It talks about their credits. And we're talking about moving their credits from one institution to another. And what we're actually going to be doing is moving it in the opposite direction. So we're going to be taking them from the university and putting them back at a community college. And I can give you an example of why we may want to do that. So for the typical associate degree student, right, you need 60 credits to receive the AA. If you're going for a bachelor's degree, you normally need 120 credits, you know, credit hours. One class is traditionally three credit hours. You take five classes, that gets you 15 a semester, 30 a year, and you're ready to graduate in four years, you know, as it's designed. And so an associate degree, you need about 60 credits. But many students who are enrolled in community colleges or two-year institutions, they actually transfer before they get to that 60 credit level. So they might say, oh, I've done three semesters. I've gotten my gen eds out of the way, right? I'm a part of this population, maybe 40% who are just looking to do that. I'm ready to go on to a university or another institution. So I'm just going to go ahead and move on to a university and start taking classes in my major. So that means that they leave, right? They leave the community college or the two-year institution and they get to take their credits with them, right? Maybe they got 45 credits, maybe they got 30 credits, but that means they didn't pass that 60 hour threshold to get the associate degree. So they're graduate or they're sorry, they're transferring before they have graduated. So that puts them in this potentially precarious position of meaning they now have two buckets of credits, right? They have credits from the community college and they have credits from a university. And so reverse transfer just says, hey, what if we take these new credits you're earning at a university and transfer them back to the community college? because that might be able to put you over that 60 credit hour threshold and give you an associate degree, even if you want to keep going and getting a BA. Can we kind of borrow from your four-year time and make your two-year time whole? And so the innovation, which is, I think, rather common sense, is reverse transfer thinking about students' credits as one large bucket rather than these separate buckets spread across institutions. So if a student needs so many credits to get a degree, it kind of asks, why does it matter where they got them? Let's combine them. I think another sort of intuitively appealing part of that is that it sort of provides students a little bit of insurance almost 
sort of guaranteeing them something, right? It's guaranteeing them at the very least an associate degree. Yes, that's exactly right. And another thing that I just was thinking about as you were describing this example is, just to be clear, a particular course or a particular set of credits, those credits could count towards both the associate and the bachelor degree. That's right. It's not like one or the other. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's how it traditionally works for students, right? You earn credits, you can be awarded an associate degree, but those credits transfer to a four-year. They may not all transfer, but hopefully a majority of them do transfer. And you can kind of quote unquote double count them, you know, toward both degrees because you're showing competency in these general education areas, for example. And so the university takes that as credit of your competence and success there. That makes a ton of sense. And I think it's worth really diving into who these transfer students are and the idea that two-year colleges or community colleges where the terminal degree is an associate degree, that's not all they're trying to do, though. These two-year colleges and associate degree programs and community colleges, a fundamental role of them is to provide a pathway to a four-year college or university. That's why a lot of students are starting in that type of school or type of program in the first place, right? That's exactly right. We sometimes penalize in conversations community colleges for having low completion rates, for example. But you're exactly right in that many students enter a community college without the intention of completing, without the intention of getting the associate degree. They're seeking to pursue credits so they can then move on to a four-year university or college where they would then earn a credential. And it's an entry path, you know, fundamentally, sure. So if I understand right, it seems like about a third of two-year students ultimately transfer to a four-year school? Yes. So that's the rub, the policy kind of problem here that we are thinking about. So colloquial wisdom, right, is that you start at a community college. It's a viable pathway to a four-year degree. You take some classes at the community college at a reduced price, transfer them to university, and you graduate with a BA. So they think this makes sense in theory, but what you alluded to is correct in that this doesn't really reflect the experience of the vast majority of students who try to do this. The vast majority of students enter a community college and intend to do this. They intend to transfer and earn a BA. The most recent estimates are about 78% of first-year students at community colleges report aspiring to transfer and ultimately earn a BA. But you're right that only about a third ever do. So 31% of students actually ever move from a community college to a four-year university or institution. So, you know, again, sure, some of these students never plan to transfer and the AA is their final goal. But there's a really big gap here between, you know, almost 80% saying they want to transfer and 30% actually doing so. So why do we think that is? Why is the transfer rate so much lower than we think it ought to be and lower than what students themselves say they plan to do. So, I mean, just like the act of applying to college, right, like and getting into college and rolling and all of the hazards and barriers and frictions that exist for students there, they still exist even once you're in college and you're trying to move to a different institution. And so there are a lot of complexities in the transfer process itself. You need to apply to transfer. You need to be accepted. You then have to think about what credits are going to actually transfer to this institution. 
how much kind of ground, if you will, am I going to lose, right? If only 50% or 75% of my credits are transferring, what's the benefit cost in my head of kind of going through this process and actually doing that? Some states are, I understand Rachel Baker and McCall Kurlander were on the podcast previously, and they kind of featured work on California's associate degree for transfer, where states are trying to think about ways where we can ensure that if you earn these credits, they will transfer and they will count. So we're not in this process of adjudicating, well, you took math 10 here, is that math 101 here? And that's the reality for many students. They're waiting for a registrar or a faculty member to say, yeah, this will count or no, this won't count. And so the process isn't as streamlined or efficient or transparent as it could be. And that makes it extremely likely that folks aren't going to be successful when they try to transfer. Successful in the transfer. In the transfer process, yes. And it's saying, oh, I want to transfer. And even if they begin thinking about transferring, there are such informational asymmetries, but also other barriers, right? Like potentially you've been enrolled at a two-year institution and you've been paying a tuition fee rate that is common for that sector of higher education. And now, even if you are accepted to transfer, you're now likely facing a bill that could be double that, right, to enroll in that first semester. And so it's very much a, a break between the experiences and processes that students have been accustomed to, to then thinking about jumping off and going into a four-year. Do you happen to have a, a rough number for us of, of the uh, the typical cost of a credit at a community college versus uh, a four-year university? I would say on average, this clearly varies widely between states and what they might you know use for financial aid policies and things like that. But I would say from my prior experience, I think the average cost of a credit or a course for a two-year institution is probably somewhere between $500 and $1,500. And the cost of that at a four-year institution is somewhere around, you know, potentially double that. So thinking between $1,000 and $2,000. Again, varies widely, but there's at least a meaningful increase for students thinking about paying for the next credit. Yeah, I, th I think it's important to keep in mind that the money issue is there in parallel with the just logistical issue of transferring. Okay, so th there are challenges to transferring, but there's also challenges to completing the degree once you do transfer. And so my other question, you know, to just have some numbers in mind is, for the students who do successfully transfer to a four-year program or four-year university, how successful are they in completing the four-year bachelor degree? And what happens if they don't? And I think part of what happens if they don't comes back to why these reverse transfer associate degrees are, are potentially valuable. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is the point where the story gets a little worse. And so remember about 30% of those community college students actually successfully transfer to a four-year college or university, but less than half of them ever actually earn a BA within six years. So the graduation rate for a community college to four-year transfer student is about 47%. And so this is a problem, right? Going from 80% of people who say they want to transfer to 30% of people now actually transferring. And then about half of that 30% or a fifth of those who initially said they wanted to get a BA actually getting a bachelor's degree. And the problem here is not only that we have relatively low you know, 
graduation rates for these students. What's worse is that a majority of students who transferred did so before they earned that associate degree, like we were talking about. So 60% of those transfers moved to a four-year institution before they actually got an AA. So they now have this big bucket of credits from the prior community college, and now they're earning credits toward a BA at a university. So unless they graduate, which reminder, you know, the graduation rate is 47%. Unless they graduate, they're now in what prior works have described as this all or nothing position. They now have this collection of two-year credits and a collection of four-year credits, but they have absolutely no credential to show for it. And so now they kind of are joining, potentially if they stop out, this population of 36 million Americans that have some college credits, but no degree. And that's the fundamental problem that the transfer, that the reverse transfer is trying to solve. That's exactly right. And so it says, hey, let's put all these credits together back at the community college level and see if we can get you over 60 hours so that you can get this associate degree. Which is an incredibly sort of obvious solution to this problem that will really help people maybe. Theoretically, right? And it could have benefits for people who keep in, who stay enrolled and benefits for folks who ultimately stop out. And so, but it kind of, the idea is providing this insurance, right? So like if a student doesn't ultimately complete the bachelor's degree, then they still have an AA. So they can still move into the labor market as they would and theoretically still receive some wage benefit or make more money, given that they have this credential, which potentially signals a level of education and training. But even if a student wants to keep going and getting their BA, well, just also have an AA. So this could benefit them, as we talk about in the paper, about potentially this is a motivating factor, right? Like, hey, you've earned an associate degree because you passed this milestone. So maybe that's a signal of the student's own ability. And that kind of propels them to keep going, to keep taking credits and being successful to get the BA. And and a majority, we know now that a majority of college students in the United States work while they're enrolled. Even folks who are enrolled in four-year institutions, they are working while they are seeking a bachelor's degree. So if they are working and they now have an associate degree that yields returns in the labor market, theoretically, they may be able to earn more while they are still enrolled, which could help, you know, reduce other barriers or frictions or hazards to them ultimately completing the bachelor's degree. So it seems like a win-win all around, right? Like if you ultimately stop out or if you want to stay enrolled, there could be some benefits. And that's kind of a lot of the motivation behind adopting these reverse transfer associate degrees. And related to the sort of motivation effect, I'd I'd imagine there's probably like a self-esteem boost as well of having a tangible diploma to hang on the wall to having a line to put on your resume and, and things like that. So how many states have these types of reverse transfer programs? And how recently has this sort of come online? So from our background study and, you know, reading some policy reports or, you know, press releases and things from other states, we understand that there's about 15 states that have this type of program. And it's a very diverse group. So from Florida and Texas and Georgia to New York and Oregon and Colorado and our state of study, Tennessee. And so these aren't relatively new, right? So they actually started about 10 years ago 
And there was this initiative called Credit When It's Due. And it was this collaboration between about five foundations. And they came together to kind of kickstart the development and implementation of these programs. But even though this started, you know, 10 or so years ago, these really take time. Some states could really easily implement them. Others had to think about changes in state laws or board policies that governed this transfer process. And then they may have had to develop like a mechanism to actually transfer credits or notify students that, hey, you've been awarded this degree. And so the state that we study, Tennessee, was actually one of these original 12 that began, these 12 states that began this work in 2012, but they didn't actually start awarding degrees until 2015. So 2015 is still, you know, relatively some time, you know, since the present day. But so these aren't necessarily new programs, but we now just finally have enough of a window to study, you know, impacts on graduation rates for someone who started, you know, in 2015 or labor market returns for someone who entered higher education in 2015. I mean, it's still something of a new innovation, I guess, even the past eight or 10 years. I was also wondering, did these enjoy bipartisan support? I can imagine how they do, but I can also imagine how there might be some criticisms or concerns about these programs. What does the political landscape look like for these? My understanding is that they do enjoy some pretty strong bipartisan support. And I think that's, you know, evidenced by the really broad diversity of states and their kind of political leanings or ideologies that have adopted these programs. And I think that's because of what you alluded to and that there's kind of this common sense factor. If a student earned these credits, why shouldn't they get the award? But that also doesn't mean that there aren't notable concerns. And so what I've heard around reverse transfer in states is less between members of different parties, but instead between institutions and the state legislature or institutions and the boards that are going to implement these. And so the most common concern that's been kind of put forward around reverse transfer is that they may actually have kind of these unintended consequences of, let's say you're you know enrolled, you're getting a bachelor's degree, and we then give you this AA. Universities could argue that this could incentivize students to stop out and substitute that AA for the bachelor's degree that they're pursuing. So just as a student could feel motivated to keep going they can also potentially feel content. They've got a degree, they don't need to continue, and they may believe that continuing toward a bachelor's, the benefits there or the costs there, right, exceed the benefits of actually ultimately getting that degree. And so a lot of administrators at four-year universities kind of felt that this could be a plausible negative effect of the program, that more students could instead stop out And so that's something that we attempt to directly address in this study by saying, hey, do we see, you know, an impact on students' bachelor's degree, you know, completion rates? Based on what we talked about earlier, the payoff to a four-year degree is so big, completing it, you know, you could also might expect that that wouldn't happen so much if, and this is a big if maybe, students are aware of the payoff of the four-year degree relative to the two-year degree. That's a big if, right? It's probably one of our most fundamental challenges, I think, in higher education. We assume that students make these very rational decisions. Oh, well, I'm going to make 30000 more a year. I should definitely do this. But 
folks are definitely boundedly rational and not every student you know, has access to this information. And a lot of folks, if they are working while they're enrolled, they may plan to continue in that job. And so the earnings premium for the individual may actually not be realized as it is in aggregate or on average, as we see for others. So you're going to empirically address this, you know, theoretically ambiguous question in the state of Tennessee. So when was the program initiated in Tennessee? And is there anything specifically unique to the program in Tennessee that we should keep in mind as we talk about this? So yes, we're going to test a host of kind of academic and economic outcomes of these programs and kind of ask, you know, are they good or are they bad? And so Tennessee started, so as I mentioned, it was part of these first, this group of 12 states who began working on these programs in 2012. It wasn't until 2015 that Tennessee actually awarded the first degree there. What Tennessee was kind of doing in this interim period was convening a reverse transfer task force. And this uh, task force was made up of you know, stakeholders from community colleges, from universities, from privates, from kind of state representatives. And it was basically charged with establishing this program, determining how they would award these degrees, executing these transfer agreements between all of these institutions. But what's important for us in our study is that this task force also developed what's called the reverse transfer system, or RTS. And that's actually a software that facilitates the program, that kind of captures students' decisions about, uh, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later, but whether or not they want to opt in or opt out of this program. It collects their information on their transcripts. So, you know, what's their GPA? What credits have they completed? It then audits those against, you know, program rules. And then it functionally awards the associate degree and alerts students that they've been, you know, awarded this credential. And so as Tennessee's program was being developed, it actually looks very similar to other states' programs. But for students to get an associate degree or reverse transfer associate degree, they need to meet specific GPA and credit hour thresholds. And those are relatively very simple. So you need to have the 60 credits, you know, pulling them between the community college and the four-year, and you need to have at least a 2.0 GPA. But one important feature of the program that every state has to wrestle with is that students need to opt in to participate in reverse transfer. So students' educational records or academic records are protected by FERPA, or the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which in this case tells institutions that, hey, you can't just send people's transcripts to other institutions, right? We There's not just a free market of student information. And so a student needs to kind of proactively authorize that. That if, a, if we want to award a credential, then a student needs to authorize the four-year taking their credits, moving them back to the two-year, and the two-year considering them for a degree. And so what this system does is identify all the students who might be eligible for reverse transfer, and then it sends them an email saying, hey, here's the program. We'd like you to opt in, it, which allows their current institution, the university, to share their transcript information back with the prior community college. And students kind of can opt in immediately. There's like an FAQ page and they get reminders, right, if they haven't ultimately opted in um, or if they haven't ultimately responded. 
So they're made aware of their eligibility. Yes. Students are informed that, hey, based on your current information that we have from your two-year and what you've done now at this institution, you may be eligible for reverse transfer. So can we initiate this actual process of transferring your credits for evaluation to so, we, so we can see if you actually get this credential? And who did you say is sending that email? So the information is coming from this kind of basic software system. But when students receive the email, it's branded with the Tennessee Reverse Transfer Program, and it has the logo of their current university and their former community college. So there should be a lot of familiarity here of, hey, you're getting a letter from like it feels legitimate. your registrar. Yeah, that's exactly right. With your university logo, it also has the name and the logo of your you know, prior community college. And it's kind of then directing you to a page to find out more information um, if interested. It doesn't sound like a spam call about your car's extended warranty or something like that. Yeah, hopefully not. So that's important. And it's nice that it it's sort of automatically triggered by the software. I guess related to the the software and the, and the need for building that up, I was really interested to learn that the Lumina Foundation contributed a big chunk of money, $400,000, to the effort to institute this program. How common is it for a foundation or a, a, a non-governmental actor like that to contribute money to the implementation of a policy like this? I guess generally and in, in Tennessee, was the foundation involved in any other aspects of, of the policy? Yeah, so this is extremely common, especially at the state level and in higher education. So I, I can't speak to Lumina's involvement in designing or kind of contributing to the design of Tennessee's policy. Foundations in the education space have a play a very heavy role in the adoption and design of programs like this. And so actually what I would categorize as like new education policies over maybe the last 10 or 20 years can actually be traced back to many of these foundations. So like free college programs, right? Like if you trace kind of the current advocacy efforts for those, they're spinoff efforts of other, you know, associations or groups that were actually funded by uh, organizations like Lumina or for kind of the design of performance management systems or outcomes-based funding in higher education. If you kind of track the policy adoption and evolution of those programs, they all kind of make their way back to a foundation in the higher education space. So they play a very large role in either funding third parties who provide technical assistance to states. So, hey, you're going to do this here's somebody that can help you actually pull this off or by actually directly funding agencies, state agencies like coordinating boards or governing boards to do this work, to kind of offset time or things like that to do these efforts. That makes sense. I guess I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, like the Gates Foundation has done a lot more in the K-12 space, but I, I guess it happens in, in higher ed as well. Okay. So let's uh, cut to the chase. What do you find? What are the effects of eligibility and receiving and I guess those are separate questions, right? These reverse transfer associate degrees on the labor market outcomes that you can study. So broadly, we find that reverse transfer associate degrees don't do anything for our population of interest on their academic outcomes. Or positive or negative. Positive or negative on their academic or labor market outcomes. And so we look at, we examine whether receiving the reverse transfer degree increases the likelihood they were ever employed and we look at seeing whether the reverse transfer degree ever increases their annual earnings one year after getting the degree, three years after getting the degree, and five years after getting the degree. 
But broadly, again, we don't find that having this credential improves employment outcomes on any of these margins. So this is what analysts would was no notable effect in either direction. And I'd imagine that, well, and I know historically, sometimes researchers have a difficult time publishing results or studies that, that find a null result like this. But in this case, in many cases, I would argue, it, it's really important to publish what we find and, and document what we find. So in this particular case, why is it so important to document a null finding like this? So I think we typically ask these questions, you know, does this work? You know, does this increase outcomes or does this, you know, reduce outcomes? And so potentially for a policymaker, particularly the no answer is just as important, if maybe not more important than this yes answer. So to say like, yes, it is working. That means that what we're doing, you know, is having a positive effect. Maybe we should keep doing it or maybe we should scale it. But when we provide an answer like this, it says, no, it's not really working. Then it kind of opens up the opportunity for additional questions, right? Like, why isn't it working? Should we stop doing it? Should we do something else? And so I would say like, no is maybe unpleasant at times, right? Particularly when a program has like a price tag and a lot of people have spent many, many years, you know, up to a decade working on this program. And so I do also agree that it's important to publish these null findings, particularly if they're going to agencies that are willing to take the null finding and ask those follow-up questions. But what can we do to maybe increase the likelihood that this has a positive outcome for students that we are focused on? And in terms of scope, can you give us a sense of how many students were affected in Tennessee, I guess both in absolute numbers, but also like as a fraction of college students, both in terms of eligibility and how many actually received one of these degrees? So uh, just as like a flat number, um, the state of Tennessee is now reporting that they have awarded almost 6,500 reverse transfer associate degrees since 2015. And so I mentioned kind of this opt-in challenge, and that is a big barrier to students receiving these credentials. And so when we look back over the history kind of of the program, there were 65,000 students who were initially eligible to have their transcripts reviewed for these credentials. Only 13% of them actually opted in to the program. And so that's kind of then led to this 6,500, you know, credentials ultimately being awarded. And so as a kind of on scale of all associate degrees that are awarded in the state, that means these reverse transfer degrees make up about 7% of all associate degrees that are there. But this kind of opt-in rate of between, you know, 10 to 30% is similar to other states where folks have reported on how many people are opting into their program. And do we think that other states would be fairly similar to this in terms of take up? Yeah. So Tennessee's like opt-in rate kind of pooled across all of these years is around 20%. So 20% of the people who get this email ultimately say, yes, I want to have my transcripts, you know, reviewed for this credential. And then roughly, you know, a third or quarter of those ultimately get a degree. But these opt-in rates are very comparable to other states. So those range from like, I think a low of about 10% to a high of about 30%. And their ultimate award is also very similar between 3% or 10%, you know, of people who opt in ultimately get the degree. Let's talk a little bit about the data. And this is probably where the partnership with the state comes in. 
How were you able to get the data that you needed to do this study? So one of our studies, I think, greatest strengths is the data that we're able to access. And so we use two primary sources of data. One is the what's called the Tennessee P20 Connect Longitudinal Data System. Or for other folks, you know, generally, this is the state's longitudinal data set. It follows all public K-12 students into any public or private college in the state and then follows them into the workforce. So we can see lots of things like age, gender, you know, race, ethnicity, pre-college test scores. But then once students are in college, we can observe a lot of our important outcomes of interest, right? What's their GPA? How many credits are they earning? What's their major? Are they full-time or part-time? And then importantly, did they get an AA or did they get a bachelor's degree? And then for our labor market outcomes, we can also capture through unemployment insurance data or UI data. We can see whether people are employed and what they earn every quarter. So that's really powerful to be able to kind of follow students' trajectories into college between institutions and then into the workforce. But what's important is that we're able to actually link these data with that reverse transfer system, with that software that the state uses to administer the program. And so we can not only observe everybody who was, you know, initially eligible, they got that email, but we can observe at the student level who actually opted in and then who ultimately received the reverse transfer associate degree as opposed to another type of associate degree. Lots of states, you know, provide researchers with access to, you know, P20 data sets and things like that. But we're able to marry these two through a partnership with the state and with the Tennessee Higher Education Commission specifically, which, as you could imagine, involved a lot of conversations, discussions around the research idea, engagement of stakeholders of what they're seeing, what they would like to know out of this program, and then also on the back end, right? Here's what we found. What can we do with that information? And P20 data is like pre-K through college? Yes, pre-K through 20, grade 20, right? So kind of like finishing college, that's right. That's great that you have this rich data that lets you, you know, do this exercise so carefully. Methodologically, you use a difference in difference design, which is a, a favorite method on the podcast. And basically, you're comparing awardees to non-awardees, if I understand right. So what exactly determines whether an award is made? And then how do you leverage that variation to estimate the program's effects? That's exactly right. Remember, uh, students need to have a 2.0 GPA. They need to have at least 60 college credits. And then there's this third qualifying factor that they need to also meet like the degree requirements for an associate degree. So if you recall back to thinking about graduating from college, like you need to have two maths, you need to have at least one social science credit or something like that. And so what the reverse transfer system is doing is saying, hey, do they have a 2.0 and 60 credits? And then it's up to kind of institutions to make the determination of, oh, did they actually get this you know, other, did they qualify on this other margin or what we call like the degree requirements margin? And so you're right. What we're going to be doing with this difference in differences design is comparing folks who received the degree to folks who didn't have the degree. And we have to think very carefully about what is different between these groups. So if we're thinking about like students who were looking at impacts on their GPA and credits, then we're going to compare students who are currently enrolled you know, and stay enrolled to see impacts on their GPA or their credits versus someone who's employed. We're going to look at people who are employed, 
than those who receive the degree or don't receive the degree and those who kind of are employed, like what are their earnings, for example. And so for our academic kind of outcomes, like GP and credits, what we're going to do is leverage what we would call within student variation. So we're going to compare outcomes for the same student. Like we're going to compare you to yourself before and after you got this degree. And then we're going to compare you to people who are functionally equivalent to you that opted into this program that also had a 2.0 GPA that also had 60 credit hour, you know, that also met the eligibility and that were motivated enough to also opt in, but that ultimately didn't get this credential. So we have these students who are like very observationally similar on academic performance, on credit accumulation and things, and they're at a very similar stage in their university pathway. But some of them got this reverse transfer degree and some of them didn't. And so that's one treatment receiving the award. The other thing is is just the effect of eligibility. Is that right? You also compare eligible and non-eligible cohorts? Yes, that's exactly right. So we can easily follow you while you're in college to see, oh, did this increase your GPA? Did this increase your credits? Or we can follow you in the labor market, right? Like there's a very clear before you had the reverse transfer degree and a very clear after you had the reverse transfer degree. But that's not really the case with a bachelor's degree, right? Like receiving a BA is kind of in and of itself a terminal outcome. We can't observe whether someone got a BA before they got a reverse transfer degree or after they got a reverse transfer degree. And so what we instead ask is, does the introduction of this program, of the availability of getting a reverse transfer degree, does that increase whether or not transfer cohorts ultimately earn a BA? And so we're also very thoughtful here of saying, you know, we establish a cohort of transfer students every year who move from a community college to a university. We can then zoom in on them with our data and say, who would be eligible for this degree? You know, do they have a 2.0? Do they have 60 credits? And so we can compare people who would be eligible and who wouldn't be eligible before and after the program started. And so if we think that these degrees had an impact on BA attainment, then these later cohorts, cohorts that transferred and met these criteria after the program began, they should have higher BA attainment rates. But as I alluded to, this is not the case. <laughs> we generally don't find that they are more likely to earn a BA. And we also don't find that they earn a BA faster, that it kind of reduces their time to degree. So your the null results we talked about are null results, no effect for both different conceptualizations of, of the treatment. Yes. Whether we see folks who actually awarded it, we don't see that that changes their employment or earnings. And then even people who would be eligible, we don't see that changes their behavior at the university level of still persisting to get a BA. You know, sort of null effects across the board and really little, I mean, there are really no effects across the board on degree attainment and employment. Again, we've talked about like it's important to know when things don't work or, or don't move the needle. But before we talk more about that, I'm curious, why do you think there's not at least a little bit of a benefit here? So we think there are two kind of very plausible explanations, one on the academic front, so why we don't see kind of these changes in BAs, and then one on the labor market front, why we don't see this increase in earnings or employment. And so can first talk about like the academic side, we would argue that the program is somewhat mistargeted. So students who are eligible to write even get this email they have, by definition, already beat the odds. So they have transferred. 
right? Remember, only very few students actually successfully make that jump from a two-year institution to a four-year institution. They've also surpassed a defined credit hour threshold. They are at least halfway. You know, they've gotten enough credits to get an AA. They're also at least halfway toward a BA. And they've maintained a good GPA. And what's more, they've also proactively opted into this program. So these are students who, on average, are already likely to succeed. And so it's somewhat unsurprising then that if you think about getting a reverse transfer associate degree, whether that's going to really impact the GPA they earn next semester, or that it's really going to impact whether or not they ultimately earn a bachelor's degree. We might expect, though, that we would get different results among a population of students who aren't so motivated or who haven't already proven their success at navigating the transfer pathway and achieving these academic thresholds. So we think if a student kind of meets these program eligibility and they opt into the program, their BA completion rates are already relatively high. And so it's not going to kind of on the margin affect whether or not that student ultimately completes their BA. Second, though, if we think about why getting this associate degree, which we kind of started the podcast talking about, there are labor market returns to these credentials. Why then are people who are getting these credentials not earning more or why are they not more likely to be employed? This is not hyperbole. This is the actual statistic. 99% of the reverse transfer associate degrees that are awarded in Tennessee are in liberal arts. That's what the degree says. So why is that the case, though? What we think is that registrars and the people at these community colleges who are making the decision, you know, the yes, no, they get the degree or they don't. We think that they are being as inclusive as they can. We think that they are awarding these credentials. They are giving students kind of as many degrees as they can. And so what that means is that it's pretty cut and dry about whether a student, you know, exceeded a GPA credit hour. It's very clear if they exceeded, you know, 60 credits. But remember, there's like this third qualifying factor that they had to have also met the degree requirements. So they had to have, you know, one science, one math, one whatever. It's easier to meet the requirements for a very general program of study. So there are less stringent requirements for getting an AA in liberal arts or liberal studies as there are for getting an AA in nursing or getting an AA in information technology. So by definition, if we're looking at these big bucket of credits and are trying to identify, you know, which associate degree do they all count for? On average, they're going to count more for getting the AA in liberal studies. And so we think that kind of they're saying, oh, well, we can't give them the AA in nursing, even though they, maybe that was their major. But they did have enough of these combinations of credits to get an AA in liberal arts. So 99 percent of people who get this degree get an associate degree in liberal arts. And we know from prior works that these general studies associate degrees have little to no labor market return. We observe you know, that to be the case in our sample and with our group of students as well. So prior works, uh, like there's a study in Michigan that looked at the returns to associate degrees and they found that very similar, you know, 20 to 30% bump above a high school diploma earner, but that was dominated by people who are getting associate degrees in nursing, health, engineering example. They find that the returns like a general degree to be closer to like six or 7%. But what's complicated by those studies is they're comparing people who got those degrees, 
but also people who got, you know, that had that GPA that had that high level of credits. What our study is doing is instead saying for students who have the same GPA and the same level of credits, that the only difference between them is this piece of paper. We can then kind of test whether or not getting that piece of paper or credential increases their labor market earnings. And we don't find that it does. So you do rule those out, but then you also suggest that this doesn't necessarily mean we should stop considering the use of these programs, the adoption of these programs. So could you articulate the argument for, you know, these effects are are null or, or quite small. So what's the argument for still keeping them around, these programs? So I think kind of broadly, we would say like, we wouldn't necessarily say states should keep adopting these programs, but I don't think our results suggest the idea of like eliminating them. So like, there are no negative effects here we can rule out kind of those concerns that were mentioned earlier by policymakers that we're going to kind of have this in mass exodus of people in BA programs. We don't see that. Right. There's no active harm. Right. But we also don't see an active benefit. So the argument is that we already spent this time and money setting up the software, setting up the program, and we might as well just leave it in place since it's already there. Well, no, I would say like that feels very kind of, um, sunk cost bias, right? I think what we would say is like, there are two potential arguments for keeping these programs or moving them forward. So fundamentally, we would say, you know, as the kind of policy evolution happened, it was called credit when it's due. And so fundamentally, students earned these degrees. They have accumulated 60 credits, they got a 2.0 GPA, and they met these degree requirements. They deserve these degrees. They paid for them with tuition dollars, by kind of by and large, they have earned these credits, and so we should award them these credentials. However, what our study points to is that, though, states have an opportunity to think about or reimagine how these programs are targeted, what student groups are eligible, what degree programs are eligible, so that we could think about identifying a population that would be most served or be best served by these degrees. And so it's not kind of let things stay as they are, because as they are, they're awarding credentials to students who earn those credentials. But it's to say, let's build on kind of your argument of we've already done all this work. We've already created these programs. They also conceptually make sense. They have a common sense argument behind them. What if we then take all this infrastructure and identify the students who are going to get labor market bumps or who are going to get you know motivational bumps to complete that AA? So I guess there is, even though those initial costs, like the large cost of setting up the software is done, I guess there's small costs of of keeping this in operation. Yeah. So our state partner in Tennessee, they estimate the annual cost of this program to be around $360,000, which I think, you know, it sounds large, I think, to us, like the average individual, but is really, really minuscule when we think on the scale of statewide higher education and other types of student support services. And so you just hit on some of my next question, which was how would you advise states that already have these in in place to revise or improve their reverse transfer degree program to really maximize the benefit that students can receive? Is there anything else on top of the targeting idea that you'd you know, suggest that people consider? Yeah, I'd say like we need to work to think about or we need to design a program that maximizes this opt-in rate. 
So again, like we're only potentially eligible to serve students who have proactively said, yeah, I want to be a part of this program, which we know from a really robust body of other literature, people who opt in are on average people who have access to information, going to be successful, you know, take up varies across different populations. So states should think about working to maximize opt-in rates or even consider a design that instead requires students to proactively opt out, right? So like on every transfer application, students could, you know, say, hey, we're going to share your credits, you know, with other institutions to potentially give you this program benefit. If you don't want us to do that, click here, you know, or say here that you don't want us to do that, right? So kind of changing the default from an opt-in to an opt-out, but also working on communication to students, right? So that they're aware of these GPA and credit hour thresholds, that they're aware of like the transfer process and also letting them know maybe like why they weren't eligible for these degrees, right? (laughs) Why didn't they get this? You know, why is the award rate kind of relatively so low? Is there something they could do or could have done that if they want to pick up the associate degree, like they potentially could do? But also thinking about like degree requirements generally, right? Is there a way that we can design the program so that more students qualify and receive credentials that could yield benefits in the labor market? Are there ways where we could award more applied or technical degrees versus these kind of like liberal studies degrees? Because I do think our findings would be different if we were able to examine reverse transfer associate degrees that were in, you know, nursing or IT or, you know, electrical engineering or something versus in this general studies area. I do really like the idea of changing what the default is. That's a a powerful sort of insight from psychology and behavioral economics. So I understand the idea of opting in, that's a different issue than eligible students who don't receive the degree. Is that right? Yes, that's right. You know, moving to this other sort of equally important issue, why is it that there are eligible students not receiving them, given that, you know, it's it's basically a free lunch? And are there ways that that could be an increased, that eligible students could definitely receive their degree? Right. Remember, there are these kind of three criterion to get the degree. After people opt in, we then have to decide whether or not they get the degree. And the award rate there is relatively low. And so they have to meet this GPA threshold. They got to have a 2.0 GPA. They have to meet a credit hour benchmark. You know, they have to have at least 60 credits to get an associate degree. But then the ringer is kind of this third requirement, this degree requirement that I kind of alluded to earlier, right? Like the one math, the two social sciences, the things like that. So in our sample of students, 9,000 unique students opted into the program. When we take these program eligibility requirements and just apply it to our sample, we predict that 8,000 of them should have received the reverse transfer associate degree based on GPA and credits, but only 3,000 of them actually received the degree. And in our data, we can actually observe a reason for why they were ineligible, whether it's credit, GPA, or requirements, and almost all of them are disqualified because of this final pass. They had, a, they had a sufficient GPA, they had a su- sufficient like number of credits, but they had what we'd say like kind of in quotes, the wrong credits, or they didn't complete like a basic sequence like gen ed or something. And what's problematic is that we're not sure that students know whether or not this is a necessary 
program feature. But another complicating factor, though, is that these decisions about whether a credit counts or not is made on a college by college basis by, you know, staff members, just like, you know, our transcripts are looked at when we're ready to graduate, you know, from college. Their transcripts are also looked at by these institutional individuals. And so they have to make a decision about like, well, does this complete the sequence or does this not? And so this opens the door potentially for heterogeneity or differences in how these award decisions are made across institutions. And so we do find that award rates are a little higher in some institutions and a little lower in others. And so I think we're interested in thinking about not only finding a way to increase eligibility, but also standardizing kind of this application of this final parameter if we think it's a necessary feature that the program needs to have. So this has all been uh, super thorough and, and helpful for understanding the nuances of the transfer process, of the reverse transfer degree programs, the general lack of an effect one way or the other on, on the outcomes we care about. With all of that said, and, and with the discussion about how to improve some of the existing programs, what's one last piece of advice or, or guidance that you would leave our listeners with, and, and most importantly, the officials at states, community colleges, at universities that are involved with the design and, and implementation of these sorts of programs? I'd say, I guess, two quick things. The first is to definitely engage in evaluations of these programs. It allows us to answer this what works question, but it also allows us to understand, like, are these maybe even iterative changes that we're making? Are those having an impact? Is that moving the needle in the direction that we want to focus on? But I think kind of my hallmark piece of advice is like, for states and institutions just to carefully consider like the student populations that these programs are intended to serve and how students take up these interventions, right? From opt-in to opt-out, but also from like the structural design, who's gonna be eligible and what are they eligible for? If we restrict eligibility for programs to students who are already likely to succeed and we award them something that we know maybe is not gonna have a big impact, then, you know, there's this potentially unsurprising that we see some of these effects. There's not going to be any program that's going to be a panacea, right, for all of our problems in, in higher education, right? But I think states who have been most innovative and who have seen the needle move are states like Tennessee, like in this partnership, who are willing to say, hey, is this working? And if it's not working, what can we do about it? And we've already seen changes in the state from the administration of this program to thinking about how it could be redesigned of taking this evidence and actually making a real change that hopefully helps realize these effects for students, but then also be a model for other states who already have these reverse transfer programs. I think that's right. And I do think Tennessee deserves a lot of credit for being pretty innovative in several aspects of education policy, both at the K-12 and higher education level. So I'm curious, as we're wrapping up, what's next for you and your, your research group? Are there other studies related to this one or, or other topics in higher ed that you're eager to work on? Well, I'm probably working on too many things, but <laughs> Lauren and I have two uh, ongoing projects uh, that kind of evolved from this reverse transfer work. So first, we're really thinking about these students who did receive the associate degree and then they went on to also complete the BA. 
we're interested in understanding how maybe this AA and BA interact in the workforce. If there's returns to an AA and there's returns to a BA, are there differential returns, you know, if an individual has an AA and a BA? Or, you know, if you have a, a BA, does an AA signal something else, you know, either good or bad to an employer? And how might that vary across majors or occupations? And then in our kind of a second work that we're doing now, we're thinking about like, even though these reverse transfer associate degrees didn't seem to matter, again, because 99% are in this kind of liberal studies area, we're then trying to kind of explore more in detail this kind of education industry match. How does matching between your degree field or major and the industry you work in affect the returns to this credential? You know, does that vary by field, level, or even occupation that you're in within a broader industry. And so thinking about this match uh, and kind of pipelines from majors to degrees to occupations. Yeah, I think the match part is really important. So I'm glad to hear you're working on it and uh, look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Is there any, any last takeaway you'd like to leave our listeners with? I don't think so. This has been a really great conversation and we definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work. Yeah, for sure. It was a great conversation and enjoyed reading the paper. Congratulations again on the well-deserved Vernon Memorial Award to you and your co-author, Lauren Russell. Our guest today has been Taylor Odell, Assistant Professor of Education Policy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks again for joining us. And if you're listening, check out the paper in the 2023 summer issue of JPAM. Take care and see you next time. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.